This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. The killing of George Floyd has left us all in various states of shock, sadness, horror and disgust. But as a white person, I believe it's time for us to stay quiet and listen to the black people in our lives. Ask them to tell their stories. How have they been victims of racism? And why is it important that their stories are heard now in 2020? While filling in for Libby on Monday, I was joined by two strong and respected black women in our community. Amber Giro is a longtime journalist and now associate producer here at MZTV. And Marva Wisdom is one of the leads of the Black Experience Project, a seven-year research study of the lived experiences of the black community living and working in the GTA. She's also a senior fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. I have a son, and the conversation with him is different, and his pain every day is real. I see it on his face. I see the transformation in him since this has happened, and he's an adult male with a successful business. I know how I feel. I feel worse than I've felt before whenever he leaves the house, and that is hard to live with, and we live with this on an ongoing basis, and it's deeper now. That's why, that's why this dialogue, that's why it's important, and that's why I appreciated receiving this call. Amber, do you feel comfortable if um, me as your white coworker friend, if I ask you about your experience, is this something you want to talk to me about? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's very few Black people out there who wouldn't be willing to share our experience just to have someone understand, to have someone be able to know what it's like to be in this skin every day. I mean, recently I was speaking with a colleague, and this was before all of this happened, and I told him, every day I walk out of my door wearing the skin I'm in, and I feel the weight. As soon as I step outside as a black woman, I feel the heaviness. I know that there's at least two stores I'm going to walk into where a security guard or an employee is going to be watching me over the dozens of other shoppers in the area, I know that the likelihood of me being followed by police, just like last night, uh, is likely more than a lot of people. I was just taking my dogs to a local park to walk in the park, but these officers circled me a good three to four times before parking at the park and staying there the entire time I was there with my dogs. What with me with bright flashing lights and dogs at night looks suspicious, looks like I'm up to no good, but this is what happens. Every single day. Jane, you know yourself. I was on the job one day doing a report live on the air, phone in my hand to the newsroom where I was called the N-word by a City of Toronto employee. What happened to that City of Toronto employee? Sensitivity training. That's how much our lives matter. That's how much we've been considered in the past. And the fact that to this day, people are still being murdered on videotape for everybody to see with witnesses around pleading for their lives 
And this is still happening, and officers are still being sent home and not arrested, and we still have to wait days for charges. It's absolutely deplorable. Marva, what Amber is talking about, her experience, um, this this is blatant. This is daily blatant racism. Yes, it is. It's it's overt um, in the Black Experience Project. Uh, Amber's story, uh, a few years ago, uh, one would say that, uh, you know, some of these are anecdotes, right? Our colleagues um, the, who have not experienced what we've experienced, those who have not been in our skin, will say, you know, that's an exaggeration or that's an isolated case mm-hmm. or it was that one individual. But we know that this is systemic and we have research to bear that out. Since the Black Experience Project, there have been a number of other research available um, across across any community for whomever would want to take a look to say that here are the statistics. And we understand what is anecdotal. Sometimes it's difficult to work with. Thank goodness for video these days, because this has been happening before. We just didn't have video. Let's face it. You're not going to open people's eyes by yelling at them and, and, you know, pointing out how racist they are. You have to bring groups together, bring communities together and show that we are all one people. We all bleed the same color. So let's start treating each other like that. Marva, we have about a minute or so left. Any final thoughts? Jane, I think one of the things that can happen, I know that in, in working on the, the Black Experience Project, uh, policing your leader to want change to happen. And I'm asking them now and reaching out to them now. Um, the change will need to start with how they recruit and how they train and who they recruit and who they train to become police mm-hmm. officers. Uh, we stand with those in policing who want change to happen, who want to have a truly representative force uh, that respects all human beings. And we want allyship throughout our communities. We want to reach out to you with open arms to say that we are here and we are ready and we need you to stand with us to make this change happen. And Ember is, is really correct when she talks about our leaders and our leadership and, and for them to stand with us as well. Marva Wisdom, one of the leads of the Black Experience Project, a seven-year research study of the lived experiences of the Black community living and working in the GTA, and a senior fellow at Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. Find more information at theblackexperienceproject.ca. And Amber Giro is with us as well, longtime journalist and a fellow colleague here at Zoomer Media. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Ontario residents received some good news this past week. It was announced by Premier Doug Ford that time-of-use hydro rates will be lower than the regular rates through October 31st. When the pandemic hit, the governing PCs gave time-of-use customers a break, charging the lowest rate of 10.1 cents per kilowatt hour, 24 hours a day. That subsidy, which expired last Sunday, cost provincial taxpayers $165 million. As of Monday, those customers are now being charged a flat rate of 12.8 cents a kilowatt hour, which is intended to be revenue neutral. Normally, time-of-use rates go up to 21 cents a kilowatt hour, 
during daylight hours. Our Zoomer squad weighed in on this topic Monday. Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, and David Kravitz, VP at Zoomer Media. While filling in for Libby on Monday, I asked them how helpful the break in hydro pricing has been during the COVID-19 crisis. Well, first a qualifier, I don't have a PhD, in which you do need to figure out hydro <laughs> rates uh, at any time of year. Uh, all the different metrics and formulas and smart meters, and uh, uh, it's a little bit like cell phone rates. I think that it's maybe deliberately mysterious. But generically, anything that lowers the price, anything that provides financial relief, uh, I define as you know a good thing. And as long as the government can uh, carry that out, uh, uh, you know, every day longer that we're getting relief from higher prices, uh, it's a good thing. Uh, beyond that, I don't really think that I'm, you know, I, I, the analysis of this, uh, could they have extended it further? Was the subsidy enough? Was the rate enough? Uh, I think that we pay uh, insane uh, hydro rates uh, at the best of times. I think that's a whole other program if you want to start, you know, unraveling those threads. But in general, I would apply anything that saves people money. Peter, did you personally notice a difference on your bill or have any comments about this? Well, you know, um, we, we've we been trying to cut down our energy use anyway, so I, I'd like to think it was due to us, but I, I think it was due to the lower rate. We saved about $15 on our last bill. So, um, you know, Maybe some of that would do to us, but I, I, I think a lot of it was, was thanks to the, uh, the cut in rate. But this one, um, this new one, uh, it, it actually should benefit people coming up to the summer where they're running their air conditioning during the day. Yes. Um, they won't be paying high peak rates. They'll be paying, um, what looks 12.8 cents per kilowatt instead of 20, 20.8 cents. So, so it, you know, for the summer months, it could benefit people who run air conditioners all day. That's a really good point because all of the other appliances we run, we run year round. So yeah, there, you there, have to, right? Right. Yeah. There would be a modest yeah. break in pricing for your dishwasher and for your uh, yeah. washer and dryer, but your but this this will be the real indicator because that is noticeable. Your your summer air conditioning yeah, hydro. Is. Yeah. Yeah. And you can't really choose to run that at night. You know, you, you have to run it during the heat of the day. Yeah. So, Marissa? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting because, you know, I don't know that I've necessarily noticed a significant savings, but I do know that the government's moved in that direction to cut costs. Um, but I think it's sort of been... I, th- I think it sort of balances itself out because I'm now I'm at home all day, whereas previously we we weren't at home. So I would typically do the dishes and I would typically do the laundry in the evening anyway, and I would benefit from those reduced rates because it's a non-peak hour. Um, but now because we're home all day, I'm using my my energy all day long, and so um, I think I'm just spending more. Um, but I think what's important about what the what the premier announced is that this fixed price will be in place until October 31st. So, you know, we talk about this pandemic lasting beyond June 1st. I know the province is starting to open up and and they've provided relief that is, you know, eventually will come, will expire and will come to an end. But it's important that this fixed price will be in place until October 30, 31st. And you're right. 
uh, Peter, you're absolutely right. It, it, it will provide the needed relief, particularly for people that are home all day running their air conditioning systems in, in the heat. And, uh, and it wasn't so long ago, Marissa, CARP had a campaign called Heat or Eat, yep. where p- fixed income seniors are literally choosing, sometimes in the middle of winter, whether to buy groceries or to have heat. No, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, and we do know that out-of-pocket expenses have increased as a result of COVID, whether or not, you know, maybe that's premiums on, on groceries, maybe that's the delivery charge associated with getting food delivered to your home, maybe that's dispensing fees. So this is certainly welcomed. Um, and you're absolutely right for people on fixed incomes. I mean, the hydro rates are just so high in Ontario. And, you know, this is one of the things that Premier Ford campaigned on. It's one of the reasons he got elected, uh, because he was so adamant about cutting costs of hydro. Um, so this is certainly aligned with, with his message. Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, and David Kravitz, VP at Zoomer Media, Fightback's Monday Zoomer Squad. You're listening to the best of Fightback. I'm Jane Brown. The Montreal suburb of Cote St. Luke has become the first Canadian municipality to make wearing masks outside the home mandatory. It's a rule much more stringent than any laws or orders we're seeing anywhere else in the country. And here in the GTA, starting July 2nd, people in Brampton will be required to wear face coverings or masks in order to ride that city's transit. On Thursday, Libby Snymer was joined by Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown and Cote St. Luke Mayor Mitchell Brownstein about their unique mask-wearing policies. Well, our bylaws, based on the successes of other countries who have imposed masking, uh, the best example is Japan, which is 16 times the size of Quebec. Yet in Quebec, we have 50,000 cases, and in Japan, they have 17,000. Their death rate is also much smaller, and that is because they impose masks, and they have a very diligent population who wears them. Now, the most important thing for all of us is to get the economy going. And to get the economy going, we need to have people feel safe when they go shopping and not to transmit the virus. So our bylaw focuses on mandatory masking in stores and municipal buildings. That's it. Everywhere else, it's recommended and there's signage and so forth, but we're requiring it in commerces. And the onus is on the business owner to provide us within two weeks a program where he will implement it. We're going to be sending signage, uh, free disposable masks to give out, and our suggestions on what he can do. Tell me about your population and what you experienced at the beginning of the pandemic. Well, because we have the highest percentage of seniors, we have big concern. At the beginning of uh, the pandemic, many of our seniors returned from Florida. Uh, they were travelers, and we had a, we had an outbreak. We expected it to happen. It did. We have thousands returning from Florida in, uh, in that period. And um, we brought it under control by uh, calling a state of emergency before the province and closing non-essential businesses and institutions. And now, you know, the seniors, they've been home for the most part. They're afraid to go out. And they, this is not sustainable. They need to have a life, too. We know there could be a second wave in uh, the fall, and we want our 
entire population to be respectful of our parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, and wear masks to protect them. They're going to want to go back into the malls where they always hang out in the winter. And if you don't wear masks, the virus just circulates indoors. And if you're going to be in a space for three or four hours, like the seniors do, it's over time that you get enough of the dose, become infected. And the only way to avoid that is if everybody wears masks, particularly in commercial buildings. What's the reaction from other municipalities in Greater Montreal? It's been very good. I've been getting, uh, you know, calls from other mayors about uh, doing similar uh, bylaws, and uh, we'll see what's going to happen. We have so many caregivers coming to our institutions and the elderly getting infected in the institutions, and they're going back on the bus and the metro, and if they're not wearing masks, you know, they're transmitting virus. So we need to be respectful of our senior population. They're our history. They're, they're the people we want to keep around to, you know, teach our, our, our children about um, lessons of life, and, and, and they're important to all of us. And right now I'm on the line with Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown. What made you decide to put this bylaw in, and uh, you were the first to announce it? Well, right now Brampton is one of the uh, hot spots in the GTA that the Premier's mentioned, from Scarborough to Etobicoke to, to Brampton. And, and we looked at our numbers, they're continuing to rise, and I think one of the reasons is we've had a number of workplace outbreaks you know, Brampton is the food processing capital of, of Canada. We've got a number of medical laboratories. And so transit is essential to these uh, businesses. Uh, because of that, uh, we've had a, a significant number of people using transit. We've had five operators test positive. Uh, and I was really concerned that this was going to enable the virus to continue to spread in our community. And we thought this was a necessary step to take a, a precautionary measure to, to, to make sure our transit operators are safe and our transit passengers are safe. What kind of reaction have you been getting to this? It's been very positive so far. And let me say, not only was it a recommendation of our, our transit commissioner, but the local union, the Amalgamated Transit Union, also supported. And so there's been real harmony, recognizing this is uh, a, a safety step. And, and during a pandemic, um, you know, it's, it's, it's public health first, and, and, and everyone seems to recognize that. Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown and Mitchell Brownstein, Mayor of Côte-Saint-Luc, Quebec. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. It is an extra stressful time these days for people who've lost their jobs. And even with the emergency response benefit, there is still a need for many to visit the food bank to get their groceries. And that's where our fight back friend Neil Hetherington comes in. The CEO at the Daily Bread Food Bank joined me on Tuesday when I was in for Libby and talked about how operations are going during the pandemic. I can tell you over the last four weeks alone, there has been a 35% increase in the number of individuals who are coming to food banks. Um, we have sort of specific uh, concerns um, with uh, in different pockets of the city. Um, you know, our, our our food bank over at the Young Street Mission has increased by by uh, 250% in terms of the number of, of people who have had to come uh, to uh, to to the Young Street Mission's food bank. Uh, the Agent Court Community uh, Center, um, about 125% increase, seeing about 3,700 uh, um, clients per week. And but, what are people saying to you about what's happened to them? Is it is it strictly around job losses? Yeah. So so what 
what is happening now is a whole host of new faces to food banks across the uh, across the city. So individuals had uh, had funds, um, that, you know, uh, at the beginning, or they had a, a paycheck or two that they that was coming due to them. But as we enter into uh, into June, those those reserves have uh, have um, uh, expired. And uh, the paychecks are not there. The emergency relief uh, has been very, very helpful to uh, to many uh, families across the country. But still, there is there is need. And and I think what the uh, pandemic has has shown us very clearly is that the line between um, somebody getting by on uh, on one week and and really struggling the next week is is very fine. And uh, and very easy to cross over, and uh, and so we have uh, responded to that need uh, as, as best we can, and I'm I'm pleased to say that there um, you know hasn't been a single delivery missed by uh, by the daily bread. The food has been uh, uh, going out. Um, there has been generosity across the country to, uh, to to food banks who have stepped up and filled the gap so that people's right to food is being realized. Um, it hasn't been easy, but it's uh, it's being accomplished. Neil, you you mentioned some staggering increases uh, there to people for people who are using the food banks. Are we seeing a similar kind of increase in in the donations? There, there has been uh, significant generosity from uh, from Trontonians. Um, you know, the very first week of the pandemic, we we had a conversation on uh, on Zoom radio and and talked about um, uh, the need, and and the listeners were incredibly uh, generous. And so there is deep gratitude for that, and that's allowed us to purchase food, and we've needed to purchase that food because. Um, the food donations that we normally get, so when people drop off food in a yellow bin, um, in a grocery store, or in a fire hall for North York Harvest or Daily Bread, um, that food has decreased by about 70%. And uh, and so we have made purchases to make up the difference in the lost uh, donated food and also to uh, to cover the, uh, the the pretty massive increases in uh, uh, usage, and so it uh, um, so the, you know an uplifting moment has been the fact that people care. They they, they fundamentally care that uh, every family has enough food on their uh, on their table. We at the Daily Bread and North York Harvest together were serving fifteen thousand families every single week. 15,000 families. I mean, it's, it's a huge number. Exactly. And uh, and it just shouldn't be the case in a, in a country as, as great as ours is. All right, let's review the contact information for donations, dailybread.ca, as well as 191 New Toronto Street, M8V2E7. Is there a phone number as well, Neil? They, they can always give us a call at 203 203- Zero zero five zero four one six two zero three zero zero five zero. Obviously, we would appreciate uh, uh, the generosity of, of listeners and simply the opportunity to be able to speak about the crisis that we're facing in food uh, security is is deeply appreciated. So, thank you, Jane. My conversation with Neil Hetherington, CEO of the Daily Bread Food Bank, on Tuesday. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. And now, 
Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Peter in Newmarket, who phoned to talk about his belief in mass testing for COVID-19. We had a situation at the golf course. Uh, a young lad, his father, uh, was put into hospital with uh, uh, COVID-19 symptoms. And uh, on occasion, this young fellow used the same golf cart that I did. And I couldn't remember if I had come in contact with him uh, during the uh, uh, period that was mentioned. So I immediately went uh, to South Lake Hospital and got tested. I agree that uh, anybody should take the time to go and get tested and uh, that would give true numbers that uh, could be reported. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. If you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby and have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail at 416 416- 367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer Moses Nimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.